Colossians 2. We're continuing the series, uh, talking particularly about this church in Colossae. And uh, this church, as I mentioned last week, was uh, not a wild church in a wild city. Um, like many of us know, or many of you would know about Corinth, another uh, letter that was written from Paul to a, a new uh, developing church. Corinth was a wild city like Las Vegas. Colossae was not. Colossae was a little tamer. However, it, it was a pagan city. People there worshipped pagan deities, uh, false gods. And so the, these new believers, these new Christ followers were, were struggling with how to live out their, their Christian life in their day-to-day world um, in comparison to what they had, had been experiencing prior to this. And there was this, in, within the whole community, a fusion of religions, uh, whether it was the Jewish heritage and Jewish faith or uh, Gnosticism or pagan worship. All these things were just getting kind of mingled and melted together. And here Paul begins chapter 2 with these words. Take a look, verse 1. He says, I wish you could know how much I have struggled for you. Uh, The New International Version says how much I've agonized over you. And for the church in Laodicea and for the many other friends I've yet yet to meet. Now, this was not a church that Paul planted or Paul formed. This was a church that Epaphras had had started up. But Paul was encouraging this church and and coming alongside as as the apostle here and, and encouraging those who were leading the church. Uh, there, he talks about Laodicea as well. And, and in this area, which is present-day Turkey, <clears throat> you had three cities that were all within about 10 miles apart, 10 miles of each other. Uh, one was uh, Colossae, another was Laodicea, and another was Herodia. So those three towns, those three cities were relatively close. So as he's talking to Colossae, he's referring to this, the, the believers in Laodicea who had been, uh, they would know each other and they'd be fairly close uh, proximity to one another. He goes on to say, I am contending for you that your hearts will be wrapped in the comfort of heaven and woven together in love's fabric. And obviously there's something going on here. He's addressing, he's saying there's a need. And he says this, so the the comfort of the Holy Spirit as well as the love would give them access to all the riches of God He goes on to say, as you experience the revelation of God's great mystery, and that is Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I'm painting, I'm I'm hurting, I'm agonizing for you. And I'm praying that that the love and and grace of God would be upon you and you'd realize exactly who Jesus is because that in and of itself is going to give you access to all the riches of heaven. I'm feeling your pain and I'm praying for you. You see, this new church, full of new believers, were were living out their faith and yet there were a lot of people around the periphery who were were speaking into their lives in ways that were not conducive to knowing God better. The people around who had a a lot of people with a lot of opinions, you could say, who felt that they knew the way that this church should operate and live. 
And Paul's saying those things are not conducive for you to know the one true God. And I believe in, in, in chapter 2 here, Paul addresses four false gods that he wanted them to steer clear of worshiping. And I call it four false gods that were keeping them from worshiping the real God. That's what I want us to look at today. Four false gods that keep us from the real God. First one is this, and when I say false gods, it's obviously small g God, a false God. First God that we tend to worship that keeps us from the real God is the God of knowledge. Verse 8 pulls this out. Back then in, in Paul's time, Gnosticism, how many of us love knowledge? The God of knowledge. We like to know things. But back in Paul's day, Gnosticism was popular. Gnosticism was self, uh, the fact that salvation is the knowledge of or acquaintance with the divine. And then you see, this, this I believe transfers even into our Western uh, Christianity and our Western church lifestyle because it, we lower it to the how-tos of our faith. If only we know more. If only we, we fill our lives with more. If only we work the system. If only we're in the know. Then we're, we're pleasing to God. And as a result, we belong and we're approved in the kingdom of God and in, in God's family. Well, look at verse 8. Paul says this in chapter 2. He says, don't let anyone capture you. Remember, he's talking to a young church. He says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world, i.e. the devil himself, rather than from Christ. <clears throat> so he's saying, don't listen to this drivel. Don't listen to this, this, the, just this junk that you're hearing that says you have to know more in order to be approved by God. No, it's all about Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus, that's all you need to know. You see, not all wisdom is godly wisdom. Not all goodness is godly goodness. It's important to know. Paul says, you're putting yourself, sorry, you're puffing yourself up with information. We get thinking, knowledge is power. Okay, I just need to know more. But here he's telling them, you're puffing yourself up with information, but it's not information that originated in the heart of God. Information doesn't save you. Knowledge doesn't save you. Jesus Christ saves you. Paul goes on to say, he told this to many of the churches that he wrote to, that, that there were people who knew about God, but they didn't know God. In James 2, he says, uh, even the demons know about God and they tremble, but it doesn't do them a hill of beans good. Just knowing. Paul in 2 Timothy 3 talks about these people who are always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, knowledge isn't what saves us. Understanding isn't what saves us. Jesus Christ is who saves us. And we need to guard ourselves against that, even here at Crossroads. So knowledge, the God of knowledge that keeps us from the one true God. The second God, the second entity that we worship is rules. We all love rules, don't we? 
We all love to put some organization in our life, some checks and balances, some do's and don'ts, and so we know what is right and what is wrong. The God of rules is also legalism. I'm a rules guy. The Jews were rules people, particularly the religious rulers. And here the Colossians were being convinced that that serving God in a certain way, checking off certain boxes, doing the right thing, is what was going to save them. They were being influenced to embrace this law, particularly the law of Moses, the law of the Old Testament. You see, a holy God sets a high bar, doesn't he? A holy God has high expectations and they were being led to believe that doing right and doing good and avoiding wrong and proving their worth and value and merit is what got them into the club. But Paul in verse 13 of Colossians 2 says this, you were dead because of your sins. Because of your sins. You see, it was rules that got you into trouble in the first place. Even though you think you can master these things, even though you think you can control what you do and have the victory over these things, you can never get 100% approval by doing things and, and things based on your actions, checking off boxes. You can never get 100% there by checking off these rule boxes. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or what you drink. You see, there were, there were rules that the Jews had about what they could and couldn't do. Or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths, for these rules are only shadows, I, I'll add to that, of God's picture. They're only shadows. The do's and don'ts, the rights and wrongs. You see, the law exposed sin. The law exposed our inability to add up, to check off all of the boxes. The law reveals the need for a Savior. And that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to save us from our sins. The law exposed sin. So Paul's saying, for you to go back to the law, it's only an exposure of your sin and a need for Jesus. Paul in Romans 8, you don't need to turn there. It says, you belong to Christ. Paul is saying, you belong to Jesus Christ. The power of the living Spirit has freed you from the law that brings death. So in Jesus is life, in the law you have death. So putting these legal requirements and worshiping the God of rules is only driving you further away from God, not toward Him. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about the old law that ends in death, but the new covenant that brings life. Rules. The third God we worship, going a little deeper, is the God of spirituality. We all like to embrace our spirituality. We all like to embrace this this understanding and this connection with God. If only we think godly thoughts, believe and not doubt, if only we act spiritual, if only we act enlightened, if only we act holy, then maybe, just maybe, that would gain God's approval. How about this? We carry a big Bible, we attend all the prayer meetings we can, we sign up for all the Bible studies we can, we we join 15 life groups, we tithe regularly. 
Look like you have it all together. Make sure your kids are dressed right and behaving just as they should. You talk about prophecy and blessings and your interpretation of Scripture. Well, I think John 3 is saying this. We serve, we give, we do, and we let people assume that we're close to God by what they see on the outside. Well, Paul addresses this, verse 18 of chapter 2. He says, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels saying they have had visions about things, this elevated spirituality, right? Their sinful minds have made them proud and they're not connected to Christ. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul talks once again to, the, uh, to Timothy and those who he was surrounded with. He talks about people who act religious but have rejected the power of God. And this is what Paul was addressing here in Colossae. He was saying there's people who want you to look all spiritual on the outside, but neglect that intimate relationship that you have with Jesus. Believe it or not, these, these people want you to believe that they're in tune, but really they've lost connection with Christ. Lost connection with Christ. I mean, over in... in in John 15, where Jesus talks about remaining in me. He says, remain in me. Stay connected to me. Why does he say that? Because that's where life is. That's where the life is. That's, that's, that's where our, our, our faith is affirmed in Christ, in Christ alone, not by our own spirituality and losing connection with him. The God of spirituality. Looking pious acting pious, and yet being distant from God Himself. There's one more God, and I must admit, this one uh, kind of hits home. And uh, first service, uh, after first service, I had somebody come up to me and said, whoa. <laughs> that, uh, that really uh, got into our personal business. I'm like, okay, well, it's getting into mine too. Because the the last, and I believe the greatest God that interrupts us from the real God and keeps us from the real God is the God of me. The God of me. Now we're meddling, right? Now it's personal. But you know, I need to explain this because there's really two, two sides and two extremes to the God of me that at least Paul brings up here. Both are equally egocentric. Both are equally me-focused. And truly, this God of me is, a, uh, is a, an evil combination of the two previous gods, that of legalism and spirituality. On one side, I, I call this the first side of the God of me is uh, the conqueror. I'm the, the superhero of the faith. I'm the one that, that, that believes and, and doesn't doubt I claim victory, I claim the blessings, I claim the power of God at work in me. The more I win, the more God gets the glory. And as a result, everything centers around me and what I do to draw attention to myself, thinking that my success will have a positive reflection on God. Have you ever thought that? When I experience the blessings of God, when I succeed in my faith, when I knock it out of the park in my prayer life, God is going to be glorified because of who? Me. 
And if I don't knock it out of the park, God's going to have a black scar on his face and, and I can't let God down. So I have to perform at that level and I got to be the superhero because it's all about me, right? That's one side, the prideful me. The other side is the exact other extreme that I call the lowly. Paul was warning against this side of the God of me as well. Focused on asceticism. There were those who, who felt they needed to walk around in sackcloth and ashes and destitute. And, and, and that was somehow a symbol of less of them and more of God. A humility, self-denial, one of persecution. Self-imposed persecution. It's what I call, the, instead of the spiritual superhero, it's the spiritual scumbag. You know? Who am I to stand before a holy God? I'm nothing but dirt. I claim insignificance. I deflect blessings. I claim that I am nothing but a worm, so incapable and so undeserving of God's blessings. The more insignificant I become, the more God gets the glory. And as a result, everything centers around me. Notice it still centers around me and what I do to lower myself thinking that my persecution will have a positive reflection on God. You see the two extremes of the God of me? It's still all about me, whether it's the prideful me or the lowly me. Those in Colossae were emphasizing both extremes. You see, both are equally destructive in our relationship with God, equally egocentric. And Paul speaks to this in verse 20. He says, you have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? See, there were these self-imposed restrictions that they're putting on themselves. I can't embrace this because I'm a scumbag and God is the one who, who gets all the glory and by me restricting myself, putting on the sackcloth and ashes and looking gaunt and, and fasting and putting myself under self-persecution, I somehow make God more interesting or more glorified. Such rules are mere human teachings, he says. They're our own fabrications, our own concoctions. These are the two extremes. You see, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. These are all gods that we Worship. Gods that keep us from the one true God. Gods that in, in, in the case of the Colossian church, it was, it was getting in the way of, of their joy. It was getting in the way of them embracing all of the riches of God, Paul says. So what is it in our lives? What is it in your life? that you're worshiping, that's keeping you from worshiping God? What's, what's in your life that's getting in the way of you understanding who Jesus truly is in your life? You see, Paul was struggling. He was agonizing over the church. That they would experience the peace and comfort of Christ. And I believe that was, would be his prayer for us today. That each and every one of us would experience the peace and comfort of Christ so that we would embrace and understand 
all of the riches of God Himself. You see, the gospel is so simple, so very simple. And I think there are times where we think it's too simple. We think it has to be more than just God sending His Son Jesus and setting us free. There has to be more that we do and more that we're responsible for, more that we have to accomplish in order to earn His favor and His blessing and in His love. That's a lie from the pit. Scripture says God loves you so much that He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus. And we try to make it about so many other things. We try to make it about our spirituality. We try to make it about rules. We, we try to make it about all these gods that we feel we have to serve other than the one true God. Jesus. We get thinking if only we knew more, did more, believed more, conquered more, sacrificed more, maybe God would be more pleased with us. But can I tell you, when Jesus steps into the picture, when Jesus has paid the price for your sins, when Jesus comes in and transforms your life, there's nothing more you can do. Nothing more you can do. Look at what Paul says in verse 4 and 5, circling back around to the beginning of the chapter. He says, I'm telling you this, so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments, things that aren't of God. I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in who? Not in any other gods. Not in your knowledge. Not in your rules. Not in your spirituality. Not even in yourself. But in Christ is strong. I want you to bow your heads. Close your eyes. I just want you to think about that for a second. What are the gods, or what is the God that I've been serving? Is it the God of performance? Is it the God of rules? Is it the God of how I should act? Is it the God of thinking and being a little more spiritual? If only I can think more like God. If only I can think more of Him more often. If only I can... You see, none of these things are, are bad. It's, uh, it's just where we put them in the priority list. You see, as we, we get to know God more, as we, as we get pressing in more, we, we want to be more like Him. We want to we wanna change our actions. We want to, to, to live a holy and godly life. Those things are important. I'm not, I'm not throwing them completely out. What I'm saying is, is we start worshiping those things instead of worshiping God. We start focusing on those things instead of focusing on Jesus. And so I just want you to... In the quietness of this moment, I want you to just confess. Talk to God. Maybe if you're running a blank, just ask Him, Lord, what are some things I'm setting up? 
that aren't of you. And hear me, church, my prayer is, and my belief is, is when you acknowledge those things and you take them to the Lord, He's going to set you free and He's going to release you from those things. In the same way, Paul says that as a result, the riches of God will be yours. I believe that for your life. So Father, hear our prayer. Come, reveal to us things that we've set up that are keeping us from you. It's all about Jesus. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you, Jesus. I want us to spend just a little time at the end of this service focusing on Jesus. Here's the thing, it's, it's not a scheduled project. It's not an exercise with a target. It's not a task that we have to do. Over these next few minutes, I simply want us to focus on Jesus and worship Him. Make it all about Him. Make it all about Him. We sung a song earlier in the service. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We breathe you in. We we offer our praise. We breathe our praise out. And I just want us to sing that. I want us to worship the Lord. I invite you to stand. Let's all stand together.